Chapel Hill. My name's Ellis. My name's Rachel, and we are both pastors here, and we're married. To each other. <laughs> we got married in 2010 in Oxford, England, which is where we met. And of course, we have the perfect marriage. We never argue about anything, except for the laundry, the cooking, the cleaning, our parenting, our driving. My driving. Okay, your driving. <laughs> um, our money and our work. Did I mention we work together? That's a story. About five years ago, we were attending a pastors and spouses retreat. At the time, I was a pastor and Rachel wasn't. We were driving home together, and Rachel turned to me in the car and she said, "Ellis, I think God might be calling me to become a pastor." And how did I respond? Why would you want to do that? Yeah. Talk about putting my foot in it, and a big blow-up <laughs> argument ensued for the rest of the car journey. We don't have the perfect marriage, and I didn't grow up in a family with a perfect marriage either. My parents got divorced when I was 14 years old, and we want to start out by recognizing that marriage is hard, and it can be heartbreaking for so many people. So, how do we keep going? Well, I think the passage we're going to be studying today gives us three reasons to keep going in our marriages. Three ways to to look at marriage that help us. To stay married. But before we dive into the passage, we want to start by recognizing those who are listening to this message who are single. The Bible says that singleness is not a lower class status than being married. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus was single, and he was the most complete human being who ever lived. Yes, marriage isn't a higher calling than singleness. It's just a different calling. And as a single person, it could be tempting to switch off or tune out, especially if you're online. I don't know how easy it is with a click. A button in here. It would be a bit obvious if you stood up and walked out. But I'd like to encourage you: if you are single, keep listening because I believe God has something for you in the verses we're going to be studying. Maybe it's something you need to tuck away for later. Maybe it's something you could do to support a married couple you know. Or maybe it's something that God's going to speak to you in spite of the words that come out of our mouths. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, "God was speaking to me about this, Ellis," and I'm like, "I didn't." Say anything about that. God works in mysterious ways. So we're in one Peter, continuing our journey through a section where Peter applies what it means to be a believer in an unbelieving world into three different spheres of society. As we heard a couple weeks ago from Pastor Mark, he applies it to being citizens, and secondly, as we heard last weekend from Pastor Gunner, he applies it to being servants, and now this week in the section we're going to look at, he applies it to being spouses. And there's this one verse at the start of this section that we think frames all three of these. Spheres and how we should behave in them. I want us to turn back there to begin today. It's in chapter two, verse twelve. This is what it says: Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And here, Peter is using Gentiles to just mean unbelievers or the world in general. So, keep your conduct among the world honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is Peter's thesis statement for the instructions that he gives to citizens, to servants, and to spouses. His goal is that those outside of the faith, instead of slandering us, might be instead given to 
looking at our good works and giving glory to God instead. And this leads us to the first of the three reasons that we think Peter gives us in this passage to stay married, reasons to persevere in our marriages. And the first one is this. Your marriage is a part of God's mission. Peter's heart in this section of his letter is missional. His desire is that when the world sees how we as believers act, they would be drawn to faith in Christ. And that applies to marriage just as much as it applies to the other spheres that he has talked about. Our marriages are a part of God's mission to reconcile the world to himself in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, that's one thing if you're both believers living together, marriage on, on a mission to the world. But what if your spouse is an unbeliever? I know that's true for true, true, many, true, many, true, many, true, many, true, many, true. many, many today. Well, Peter gives specific instructions to those of you who are believers living with an unbelieving spouse. And these instructions are, are given so that that unbelieving spouse might come to believe. A missionary marriage, so to speak. In Peter's time, many women had come to faith and yet their husbands had not. And this kind of marriage situation where the wife is not following the religion of her husband, this wasn't only unusual, this would have been completely offensive. It would have been like rebellious and really disrespectful behavior on the part of the wife to not follow in suit with her husband. Not only to her husband that would have been offensive, but also to society at large. And so how was a Christian woman who was married, how was she to be a witness and not a hindrance to her husband coming to faith? Peter gives his answer in verses one through two of chapter three. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wives could participate in God's mission through voluntary submission to their husbands. Submission to their husbands so that their husband might submit to Christ. Without even saying a word, a wife's behavior and attitude towards her husband might be the most persuasive witness of all. And while our context has changed, the opportunity to be a witness has not. And this is true even if you are married to a believer. Yeah, you're married to a believer, that's me. But I don't always act like one, if I'm being honest, although we won't go too much into that this morning. <laughs> Sometimes I have had the opportunity to practice this in our marriage, like that time that I came to Ellis and I shared my sense of call to becoming a pastor. After that initial blow-up argument, I determined it was probably best for our marriage that I didn't bring this up again for a while. This was for a couple reasons. Firstly, I really didn't think I could bring it up without that conversation coming from a place of hurt. And secondly, this felt huge to me. This call of God on my life, it really felt impossible on so many different levels. And so I recognized this was also an opportunity to trust God. If he was really calling me to this, then he was gonna make a way in so many areas, including with my husband's perspective on this. And so it was also an opportunity to demonstrate respect to Ellis and to trust the Lord in the way that I showed respect to Ellis. And, and it worked, right? Because you're here as a pastor today. <laughs> uh, I would say that in, in, the, in the passage, Peter says that they may be won over 
without a word. And actually, it was Rachel's silent witness in our marriage that allowed the space for the Holy Spirit to work on my life and for me to be won over to what God was was seeking to draw me towards. True, sometimes we need to trust that the Lord is gonna work to shape and form our spouses. And the hardest work of all can often be to uh, not say a word, anyone else? (laughs) The hardest work of all can be to keep our mouths shut and to honor our husbands in the way that we treat them, the way that we act towards them. And yes, this is harder if your spouse is not a believer, but we believe this passage is teaching us that God can and will act in our spouse's life, often in spite of their beliefs. And and that was what happened in my parents' life. My mom came to faith before my dad, and through continuing to love him and to submit to him, God won my dad over to faith during those years. And and he wasn't the easiest person to love during that time in his life, and yet my mom did it anyway, choosing to submit to him out of the freedom that she had in Christ, even when it was hard. Now, sometimes this wouldn't be the right course of action, and we wanna make sure to say to you today, if you are in a situation where your spouse is abusing you, you are not required to be obedient to that. Submission, as we've looked at in this section, the same word is used here. Submission does not mean blind, mindless obedience. And so if that's the situation that you're in, we wanna take a moment to just encourage you, please do get help. As a church, we would love to help you. Please call our counseling center if that's And although Peter's advice here is directed specifically to to believing wives with unbelieving husbands, I think it applies the other way around. We we know many believing husbands who have unbelieving wives, and if that's you, the way that you love your wife has the ability for God to win her over as well. God can and will use your marriage as a mission field if you will continue to bear witness to Jesus in how you act. So if you're in a mixed marriage, so to speak, keep going, keep demonstrating the love of God to your spouse in your actions and allow God to win them over to faith in Jesus. So Peter gives us three reasons in this passage to keep going in marriage. The first is your marriage is a part of God's mission. Second is your marriage is a part of your formation. Marriage is not only a part of how God wants to transform others, but it's also a part of how God wants to transform you. God wants to use your marriage to form you into a person who is more like Jesus. And we see this particularly in the verses in our passage that are directed towards husbands. Verse verse seven is that verse. Yeah, it says this, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thanks. Here, in in this verse, Peter ties together the state of your marriage with the state of your relationship with God. The behavior of husbands towards their wives will affect this passage says, whether their prayers are hindered or not. In other words, the state of your marriage will dictate the state of your spiritual life. In particular, 
Peter calls men to live in an understanding way that your prayers may not be hindered. It seems like what he's trying to say is, if you want God to understand your needs and listen to your desires, then husbands, you better understand your wife's needs and listen to her desires. Which is kind of what happened in our story next, right? Yeah, actually it is. <laughs> After that initial blow-up argument in the car and then Rachel not bringing it up for several months, uh, I didn't bring it up either. That was until we got stuck in England. We went back for a vacation and we had to renew our visa, something we'd done twice before and it had been an easy process. This time it was not. Unexpectedly, our visa got denied. At the time, we couldn't understand, God, why are you hindering our prayers? We think this is the call uh, that you have on our life to, to be in Gig Harbor. Why are you preventing that? And it was at that time God drew me back to the conversation we'd had in the car those months beforehand where Rachel had shared this sense of call to becoming a pastor. And I felt this deep sense of conviction that I had not loved Rachel in an understanding way. In fact, I'd been totally dismissive. And I knew in that moment that God was using this visa situation as a way to highlight how I had not loved my wife in an understanding way. And so I went to Rachel. I said to her, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You absolutely have a call of God on your life to pastoral ministry. And from now on, I will do everything in my power to support you as you seek to pursue that call. And guess what happened next? God answered our prayers for a visa in a quite miraculous way. Now, I'm not saying that because I did this, God did this. That's not how God works. He's not a vending machine. But he definitely used this situation and these circumstances to shape me and form me, to highlight things that were wrong in my life. And my prayers being hindered were the catalyst, so to speak, for him to do that. Your marriage is a part of your formation, God wants to use your marriage to make you into the people that he has destined for you to become. And wives, God uses our marriages to form us to be more like Jesus too. I wonder if you've ever struggled with believing that you are truly beautiful or valuable or important. It only takes a second on social media to see photos of other women, videos of other women. All those pictures just seem to be crying out, do I matter? Am I valuable? We can be so insecure. Peter addresses this in the next couple verses. He writes, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God reminded women, sorry, Peter's instruction reminded women that their value was not based on their outward appearance or their efforts. Every single woman, regardless of marital status, is precious and beautiful in God's sight. It doesn't matter who you're with or who you're not with. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You are precious and beautiful because you belong to the Lord. And I have to admit, I struggle with this. I grew up in a family where my parents were really good at praising me when I got good grades, when I put effort into my appearance, or when I behaved kindly towards others. And those are not bad things at all. Parents keep praising your kids for those things. 
But ironically, what happened, because it was mostly about my outward appearance and actions, I ended up wondering if I would still matter, if I would still have worth and be valuable, if I wasn't smart or beautiful or well-behaved. And I still sometimes struggle with this now. Um, I think it comes through in the fact that I find it hard to accept compliments. I often wonder if people would still say those things about me if they knew the dark side of Rachel. But this is something that God has been working on in me through our marriage. This is what he's taught me, is that I'm loved and that I'm beautiful, that I'm worthy of his love even on my worst day. My value is not based on my outward appearance. My worth to Alice doesn't change when I'm sick or tired or grumpy or even mean. And the longer we're married, the more opportunities Alice has had to practice this with me, the more he's seen those sides of me. And every single time that he has loved me in those moments, I get this glimpse of what God's love is really like. So I'm not there yet, but God is shaping and forming me in the sense that he's helping me to find my security and my identity in Christ rather than in my outward appearance. So whatever state your marriage might be in, we believe that what God is telling us in this passage is that he's gonna use it to transform you to be more like Jesus. So maybe a question you need to ask yourself is, How is God using my marriage right now to transform me? Maybe there are some stubborn, pig-headed parts of your personality that God is trying to soften up and make you a little bit more gentle and humble, like he did with me. Maybe there's this lack of security that you're struggling with, and God wants to reiterate that your identity is found in being in a child of God, like he has done for Rachel. It could be something completely other than either of those things. But the question to ask is, how is God at work using my marriage to transform me? And how might I cooperate with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our marriage? So what reasons does Peter give for us to to stay married? First, your marriage is a part of God's mission. Second, your marriage is a part of your formation. And third, your marriage is your main ministry. God calls us all to ministry. By ministry, I mean love and service of others. And and he calls us to do this in all our relationships. But there is one relationship that is held in higher regard in the Bible than all others, and that is marriage. It's the only relationship in the Bible that's referred to as one where you become one flesh, as we said earlier on during our time of singing. Marriage is the deepest human-to-human relationship. And as such, if you are married... Your marriage is your primary place of ministry. You are called to minister to your spouse above a call to minister to anyone else, including your kids. And Peter gives some specific ways that we can minister to one another in our marriages. So for wives, the best way that you can minister to your husband is to use your equality and out of that freedom to submit to him. 
Jesus modeled this kind of submission as we heard from Pastor Garnett last week in his suffering and crucifixion. Jesus is the ultimate example of one who didn't count his equality as something to be grasped onto, but instead laid his life down for others through sacrifice and through submission to serve and suffer and die on our behalf. And wives, we are to follow this example of Jesus, using our freedom and equality in Christ to serve, to humble ourselves, and to elevate our husbands. Now, I want us to note, husbands particularly, this submission that Peter talks about is voluntary. It is a voluntary submission by a wife, not an involuntary submission demanded by a husband. The text says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, not wives, be made subject by your own husbands. Just like the instruction that, that was given to uh, citizens and to servants, this is a, a voluntary action taken out of the freedom that we have in Christ. And so husbands, we cannot demand that our wives submit to us. We should not do that. This is a free will choice that a wife gets to make, voluntary submission choosing out of our equality, out of our freedom in Christ to serve the other. Peter goes on to give an example of what this can look like, and he uses the person of Sarah. Now, if you remember, Sarah was the wife of a man named Abraham, who was called by God to be a father of God's chosen people, the father of God's chosen people, a family into which we now, as the church, we get to be adopted into that family through Christ. So here's what Peter writes about that. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Sarah is this picture of a wife who submitted her husband. But what does it mean when it says that she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord? Does that mean that we're supposed to go around calling our husbands Lord? Lord Ellis? Lord sure, would you like that? Lord Ellis. Lord yes. Ellis. Say it with a good English accent <laughs> if you're going to bother. <laughs> you know, if you go back and you read the story of Sarah and Abraham, you're going to see that her obedience to Abraham did not mean that she kept her opinion to herself. Sarah was a strong, confident, beautiful woman who was pretty outspoken. And there's even an instance where God has to say to Abraham, you better listen to your wife and do what she tells you to do. And yet, she submitted to Abraham in the sense that she allowed him to lead her and their family. And what's so interesting is that she submitted to his leadership even in the moments that she doubted the direction he was leading them, and even in her innermost thoughts when no one else could hear her. If you know anything about the story of Abraham and Sarah, you will probably remember that they were older, they hadn't been able to have children, and that God came to Abraham and promised that they would have kids. And it's in that moment where Sarah, this is probably the only thing you remember about her, that she laughs. It's in that moment when she's laughing that she refers to Abraham as Lord in her thoughts. It's amazing that right in this moment we see Sarah calling Abraham Lord. And I think this demonstrates the ultimate respect that she has for him. 
I wonder if you've ever had friends who defame their husband to you every single time you get together. They can't help but criticize. They don't seem to want to take any responsibility. They don't want to really see anything change. They just like to whine and complain. By their language, you just know that they really don't respect their husband. Sarah was not like that friend. She was different, even in her thoughts and even in the moment where she doubted the direction her husband was leading. She was still respectful. That's why she called Abraham Lord. So I wonder about you. How do you speak? How do you think about your husband? Does it show that you value and respect him? So that's the way Peter instructs wives to minister to husbands. But what about husbands? Well, as we read earlier, he writes, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That word since tells us that 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 next phrase, they are heirs with you of the grace of life, is key to understanding why we should behave in this way towards our wives. See, in the first century, women were not equal with men. In particular, in a family, when a father died, the inheritance would pass to the sons, not to the daughters. The only way it would go to daughters is if there were no sons. Women were not equal in receiving an inheritance, but not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, men and women equally inherit that kingdom in and through Jesus. So men and women are equal, Peter tells us. But at the same time, he says women are a weaker vessel. What does he mean by that? How does that work together with equality? Well, simply, when Peter writes women are a weaker vessel, he's saying that generally speaking, women are physically weaker than men. And that's something we agree upon, at least in sports, where we divide men and women into different competitions. But Peter has a point here. He's saying if you're both equal in Christ, and yet women are generally physically weaker, that means, husbands, you have a responsibility to honor your wife in a special way. I don't know if you remember how cell phones used to be. I'm sorry for you guys, and you guys is a bit before your time, but before smartphones came along, cell phones were actually smaller, they were more rugged, uh, they, they were pretty much unbreakable, and the best thing about them was the battery lasted a week. Man, what I give for a battery that lasted a week. I had this Siemens phone, and I remember I could just throw this thing around. I, I really treated it with little to no respect whatsoever, and it was, it was unbreakable. I couldn't break the thing. Now, I have an iPhone. I put a screen protector on it. I put it in a case. I make sure that under no circumstances do I drop it. I wouldn't even give it to my kids when they were little because I didn't want them to damage it. I treat this weaker vessel with greater honor than I treated my old Siemens phone. Peter says, husbands, we are to do the same in the way that we minister to our wives. We are to show them honor. They are equal to us, and yet, because they inhabit physically weaker bodies in general, we must show them greater honor and respect. We must protect them, value them, treat them with care. And I wonder, husbands, how are you doing at that? Are there ways that you are 
treating your wife dishonorably right now. This, your marriage, is your main ministry. It's the primary place that God is calling you to minister. This is something we need to get right. And I know that for many of us, we may feel like we have failed in the way that we have ministered to our spouses. Maybe you have regrets. Maybe your marriage right now is in deep trouble. Maybe you're living with the after effects of a broken marriage and and perhaps you're feeling weighed down by, by guilt and shame in this moment. If so, I want to remind you that for those who are in Christ, those who place their trust in him, there is no condemnation. Every wrong action, every hurtful word has been forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And in a moment as we pray, we're gonna take some time to allow that forgiveness of Christ to penetrate our hearts and and remove that, that guilt and that shame that we may be under. So if you want to stay married, it's important to remember, first, your marriage is a part of God's mission. Second, a marriage is a part of how God forms you to be like Jesus. And third, it's your main ministry. And as we close, we're gonna take some time to pray and perhaps to even repent of the ways that we haven't looked at marriage correctly or perhaps the ways that you haven't treated your spouse correctly. And if you aren't married, I wanna encourage you to take these moments to pray for a married couple that you know or pray for your future spouse if you'd like to, that these marriages, all of them, all of the marriages represented in this church and in this community would reflect the fact that they're a part of God's mission, that they're part of our formation, and pray that those marriages would be those families' main ministry. Let's Let's pray. pray. Father, we come to you, and we recognize that there are many ways that we've fallen short those of us who are married, we recognize that we do not love and minister to our spouses in the way that that you have called us to. We often, as husbands, lack the honor that we need to show to our wives. And as wives, we often struggle to submit to our husbands. Lord, we give you a moment this morning and invite your spirit to come and reveal to us anything that we might need to repent of. And Lord, we thank you that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation by the blood of Christ, our sin has been paid for, that our our debt is erased, forgiveness is ours, our guilt is gone, our, our shame is removed, and that we now stand righteous in your sight because of the work of your son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for every person who's here with regrets today, about the way that they have treated their current spouse or a former spouse or even their future spouse. 
Lord, you would remove the guilt and shame that they are under in the power and in the name of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, for our marriages, that they would indeed be used by you to draw many people to faith in Jesus. In particular, we pray for those who are in a mixed marriage with a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. We pray for the believer that they would be encouraged to persevere and keep going, keep demonstrating the love of Christ in their actions. And we pray for that unbelieving spouse. Would you draw them to yourself? Would you win them over? Lord, as you have done countless times before, do it again, Lord, we ask. And we pray for each of us. Show us how you are changing us through our marriages. Show us how you're forming us, how you're making us into the people that you've destined for us to be. Lord, empower us to walk in step with your spirit as you bring about that work of transformation. And finally, Lord, empower us by that same spirit to minister to our spouses. This is our main ministry, Lord. Would we prioritize it above all others? In particular, would we prioritize Help us to prioritize our marriage above our parenting relationships to our kids. Help us to put our spouse before our children. And Lord, would you help us to show honor and love and respect and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Lord, we can only do these things through the power of your spirit. And so we invite you, come, Holy Spirit, fill us now. We need you. We need your strength pray this now in the name of Jesus. There's no Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 1030 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. All my attention on the wonder of this moment. Jesus, your presence is the comfort of my soul. There's no Just one.